Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in northwest San Antonio. prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and our Caiaphas, our fellow soldier, and the church in our house, in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment of the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be my compulsion, but your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother, especially to me, and how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this in my own hand, I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Grace of the Lord Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for this special day that you are here with us, that you are blessing us. You made a way for us to come before you, and therefore we do come before you, Lord, offering ourselves to you, our thanksgiving and our praise today. Now bless our pastor as he brings your word. Open our hearts that we might receive it through your spirit, 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. At this time, if our, if our little kids would go out with Miss Sharon, she's going to take you guys over to Children's Church. Am I off? Am I off? batteries are running low. That's okay. Y'all pray with me now. Dear Lord, God, I thank you for this day, and I thank you, thank you for the opportunity to worship with all of the people in this room today. God, I ask that you would be with us this morning, that you would open the ears of those who are here as you open my mouth. God, that you would speak through me. And that only your word would be spoken and only your word would be heard. That the faith of the people here would not rest on the follies of man, but on the word of God. Lord, I ask these things in the strong name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Have you ever had one of those moments in your life where your perspective shifts where you thought you were looking at things one way, and then all of a sudden, with almost vertigo, you begin to look at the situation from a different perspective. It's like one of those, one of those illusion pictures where one way it's like an old lady or the other way it's like a young woman, and, and the, the way you see it's supposed to tell you something about yourself. I don't know. I don't know how that works. But I do know that there is this kind of vertigo-inducing moment when you realize, is it one way? Is it another way? Is it, one, is it a deer? Is it a duck? I don't know. I had one of those moments this week. I had the privilege of participating with San Antonio Baptist Association. Um, I, I got to go to this pastor's conference. We're uh, hosting a group of Arabic pastors from across North America. So we have guys that are in Canada and in the United States from all over. We had folks from Ottawa and New York and Queens and all over the place um, over at San Antonio Baptist Association. We've uh, we fed them, put them up in hotels, and, and given them an opportunity to have just a, a time of rest. As you, as you can imagine, being a, being a pastor in the Arabic community is, is pretty stressful. And, and so in the process of ministering to these guys, uh, I was given the opportunity to, to just bring a word of encouragement to them. And, and I, do, I did for them what I, what I do kind of normally, which is beforehand, I, I go around the room and I shake hands and introduce myself. Um, and... and as I try to introduce myself to people, I try to greet them in their own language. That's a thing that I try to do. It's, I've learned it from doing mission work. And, um, and thankfully, I have several phrases of Arabic. <laughs> I have four phrases of Arabic. I can use three of them. One of them's from a completely different context. 
And so I would go around the room and I'd greet people and I, I would say, Sabah al-Hir, which means good morning. And, uh, and they would say, oh, you speak Arabic. And I'd be like, no, Arabi, uh, which is the equivalent of saying like, no, I, this is the only Arabic I speak, guys. Um, and they'd say, oh, how did, you, how did you learn how to speak Arabic? And I'd be like, well, um... And they're like, Did you, were you in the Middle East? I was like, yeah, I kind of was. They were like, oh, were you doing ministry in the Middle East? I was like, not really. <laughs> and they'd be like, oh, you were in the military? I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, and, and so one of, the, one of the women that I was talking to said, uh, so, oh, well, where were you in the Middle East? I was like, well, I was in Iraq. She was like, oh, when were you in Iraq? I was like, uh, 2004, 2005. And whenever I tell people, like, oh, okay, yeah. You were in Iraq. I was like, yeah, I was in Iraq. She says, you need to talk to my husband. My husband was in Iraq in 2004 and 2005. Now, at that point, I'm kind of like, oh, okay. I didn't have a great time in Iraq in 2004, 2005. I don't know if you guys saw the news. We weren't on great terms with the Iraqis at that point. It was a little awkward, so he comes up, and we started talking, and we started doing the thing that where, where you, you start talking about the places you were. I was like, oh, where were you? I was like, well, I was in Baghdad, and I was in, you know, I, I was in Ramadi, and I was in Fallujah, and I was in Al-Qaim. And, and he's like, oh, I was in Baghdad. I was like, oh, cool. I was in Ramadi. I was in Fallujah. I was like, okay, man, what were you doing? And he was like, oh, I was planning churches. I was like, what? <laughs> you were doing what? He, this guy was planting churches and doing ministry in Ramadi, Iraq in 2004-2005. Just to put it in perspective, I couldn't go into Ramadi in 2004-2005 unless I was in a tank. And this guy was building house churches and doing ministry. And just like that, my perspective shifted, both on what it meant in my own mind to be a bad dude, because I kind of thought I was a bad dude, but not as bad as this guy. This guy, this guy was out taking more risks, and he was doing it for a more righteous purpose. This man was out doing, in some sense, what I felt like I should have been doing. And, and, and when that shift happened, it brought back to me a lot of incredibly strong emotions. Emotions of guilt at things that I had done and issues of anger as I remembered friends of mine that had died. And, and so it put me in this really strange emotional position as we began to worship. And, and as we worship and Guy after guy got up there to lead us in worship or to do devotion. Men who I had been trained and for the last 20 years had thought of in terms of my enemies. These were men that looked like my enemies. Men that looked like people I had shot at or had killed. And they were up on stage and we were worshiping in the language of my enemy. And it just broke me. And I'm sitting there at this table, 
crying as I'm worshiping with these Arab guys. I'm, I'm like the moderator of the association. I'm supposed to be like dignified and like have my stuff together. And I'm like weeping there as I'm like dealing with guilt and forgiveness and all this kind of stuff. And, and you know, nobody looked at me weird and nobody judged me be, because that's what the Christian life is about. It's not about politics or money or where we live or who we vote for or any of those things that we turn it into. It is about reconciliation and healing. It's about people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation bended knee before Christ and proclaiming him. And we're going to see what that looks like this morning as we read a very peculiar book from the New Testament. The book of Philemon is... The shortest book that we have, it's one of the shortest, it's the shortest letter that we have from Paul. It's one chapter. We don't even have like Philemon 1, 3, no, no, it's just Philemon, verse 1. It's the only verse 1 in all of Philemon. And it, it seems to be a private letter that Paul wrote to one of the men that he had brought to faith in Christ. And so, we, in order to kind of understand the letter, we, we begin to kind of piece out some of the things. It's kind of a detective story. We try to figure out what exactly is going on here. Uh, the letter starts, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, Aphia, our sister, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we know from this? Well, we know, number one, Paul is with his protege, Timothy. So he's with his protege, Timothy, and he's writing to this church, and he's writing to them from a place of imprisonment. Now, that doesn't necessarily tell us that much about Paul, because Paul spent a lot of time in jail. Paul, Paul's like my friend Nick, not the Nick that we have here. This is a different Nick, okay? <laughs> I had a buddy named Nick. He was a deacon at one of my churches that I'd served at, and, and we would drive around and visit people, and on our way to one of the, one of the jails, we were going to go visit a guy. We're driving along, and we're talking about stuff, and, and he, told, he told me, well, I don't, I said, I, I'll tell you, Pastor, I, I ain't never been in Austin County lockup. I was like, well, but how, how are you the one driving and getting us there if you've never been there? So, oh, I've been to Austin County lockup plenty, but I've just never been in there, because he'd been in most of the other county jails in the area. Paul spent a huge amount of time in jail, so it's hard for us to figure out where exactly he was. Many scholars think that Paul's letter was written probably while he was under house arrest in the town of Ephesus, which was a couple of hundred miles away. Now, Ephesus and the town of Colossae, which is where he's writing, are in kind of the, um, they're in the western part of Turkey um, in, in an area called Phrygia which doesn't mean anything to us, but it's, it's an area that Paul had done a lot of ministry in. He had been in Ephesus, and there were all these little trade towns that were on the trade routes uh, moving out from there. And so he would base in Ephesus, and he would send people out to these towns, and people would come into him, and he would build the church up that way. And so as Paul sits in his prison cell in Ephesus, for some reason, probably because he aggravated the locals, he continues his process of building up in the church. Why is this important? Well, it's important for us to dwell on this a little bit because oftentimes as Christians, uh, we're desperately afraid of opposition. 
comfortable Christians in the United States, we look at the imminence of persecution as something that paralyzes us with fear. It dominates conversations that we have. Oh, what if we lose religious freedom? What if we lose our tax-exempt status? What's going to happen? Now, I'm not telling you that those things are good or that we should seek out persecution, but I, but I, I want to tell you that lots of Christians have endured lots of persecution and the gospel still moves forward. I, I'm, I'm constantly reminded of this as I think of my friend in Cuba who is a pastor in Cuba. And as we're going through the, the security process to get into Cuba, I have a religious visa. The Cuban government has said, yes, Andrew, it's okay for you to come here and tell people about Jesus. And I'm still nervous as I'm going through and talking to the secret police. Now, they're not really secret. The guy's wearing a suit and he's asking me questions and we're in a locked room, okay? So he's not that secret. And I, and I looked to my friend as we're getting ready to go in there. I was like, what do I say? He said, just tell him what you're doing. I said, what are you going to say? I said, I'm going to tell him what I'm doing. Well, what if they lock you up? He's like, I wouldn't be the first time I've been locked up. It's okay. <laughs> and we're talking about Cuban jail. <laughs> See, for many of us, the thought of going to jail for our faith paralyzes us. But what we see in Paul is that Paul ministered inside of jail and he ministered outside of jail. He ministered when things were good and he ministered when things were bad. His situation did not dictate his ministry. So what does he take this opportunity to tell? Well, he's, he's addressing this man that he spoke to in the town of Colossae. And what is he saying to him? He says, well, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayer because I hear of your love and the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now, that is probably one of the most complicated Greek sentences in the New Testament. Okay? And Greek is a complex language. There's all kind of modifiers in there. And it could take an entire sermon to piece out just this one verse. But the upshot of this verse is Paul is praising Philemon, or Philemon, sorry, for his continued work in the church in Colossae. Philemon is a pillar of the church. He is a wealthy man who has a large house. The church meets in his house. He cares for people there. He is a good man. He's a pillar of the church. And his service to the church in Colossae has, has not only helped the people there, but it's also encouraged Paul as he sits in prison. And so he wants to encourage Philemon. He wants him to know that, that God's church is built through love and it's maintained through service and that his actions have influenced far beyond what he thinks that they might. But with so many things that Paul says, there's a catch to this. And as, as Philemon is reading this, and probably out loud in his house, he's got to be thinking like, oh, cool, this is a lot of really nice stuff about me. You ever got one of those letters where somebody says a bunch of stuff and you're waiting for the butt? You're like... But, or where's the ask? If I ever come up to you and, and put my arm over your shoulder, I'm like, you're looking so pretty today. Get ready, because I'm about to ask you for something. That's right. Linda knows. So does Lolita. Marty knows all the time, okay? <laughs> 
See, Paul is not just writing him to tell Philemon that he thinks he's a neat guy. There is something else that's going on. And we begin to see it in verse 8. He says, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Here it comes. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. And this is where the letter of Philemon becomes complicated. See, Philemon was a great guy, and he was a pillar of the church, and he was a wealthy man. But like so many people in the Roman Empire, he was also a slave owner. He was a human being that owned other human beings the way that I own a cat. Maybe that's not the same. My cat's not super obedient. But the fact that he owned another person and the fact that he participated in slavery gives this letter all kinds of overtones with regard to social justice that, if we're not careful, derail us from what the letter is actually about. And before we can talk about that, we've got to talk about Roman slavery. So, so often when we, we, we talk about the book of Philemon, we're told, well, you know, Roman slavery wasn't like slavery in the South. And then we get told about how slavery really wasn't that bad for a Roman slave. And, you know, they had all these kind Look, slavery is always bad. Slaves in Rome were in no way independent. They could not marry. They had no agency. They had no rights of any kind. A slave in Rome could be killed for any reason or no reason at all. A slave in the Roman Empire was in an incredibly bad situation. And the fact that there were some good masters or kind masters or masters who did not abuse their slaves does not make Roman slavery somehow different from slavery in the American South. So we, as Christians, have to deal with that issue as we deal with this book. That's important because we look at the way that Paul dealt with it. And here's how Paul dealt with it. He didn't. He didn't deal with it. He didn't talk about it. He didn't rail against it. In none of Paul's letters does he say, and you should go out in the streets and fight slavery, for it is a great evil. Jesus didn't talk about it. Peter didn't talk about it. In no place in the New Testament is anyone told to go and advocate against this societal evil? But they also don't tell them to go and advocate against widespread infanticide or against aggressive war or against the deep corruption that occurred in the Roman Empire. See, when Paul writes to his people, he is concerned with one thing their soul, and their character. And, and as we'll see later on, his concern for their soul and their character is what transforms them later on. Paul's issue here is not with 
Philemon the slave owner. It is with Philemon the Christian. And with a broken relationship that has occurred within his household. See, in Ephesus, Paul found out that one of Philemon's slaves, a man named Onesimus, had stolen some money from his master and run away. We're not sure what the circumstances were. We're not sure why he stole the money or why he ran away or what that meant. What we do know is that Philemon lost one of his slaves and that slave found his way into the presence of Paul. And in one of those divine, sovereign moments, Paul, the great evangelist, came into the presence of this runaway slave, shared the gospel with him, and Onesimus came to Christ. And his life changed. And he went from being useless to being useful. He he went from being someone who was on the run and from a broken relationship to becoming one of Paul's inner circle. And so Paul is pouring into this man and teaching him in the same way that he teaches and pours into Timothy and Titus. And as Paul gets ready to leave Ephesus to continue on his ministry throughout the Mediterranean world, he wants to take Onesimus with him, but there is a, a problem that is, that is blocking it, and that's the broken relationship that Onesimus has with Philemon. And so Paul asks Onesimus to do the unthinkable. Go back to your master and make peace with him. Now, as a runaway slave, Onesimus has no legal status. He can be stopped for any reason, Like most slave societies, the Roman Empire took a dim view on runaway slaves and rebellious slaves. This wasn't a time when they would show any mercy at all. To kind of see how they deal with slave uprisings, you go back and watch the movie Spartacus. It's great, right? Spartacus with, who's that guy with the the dimply chin? What was his name? Kirk Douglas, yeah, man, that guy, he was a good-looking dude, right? And he's up there, and he's like, I'm Spartacus. No, I'm Spartacus. But the upshot is they crucified all of them. That's what Onesimus has to look forward to when he goes back to Philemon. Paul says, you need to go back, and you need to go make peace with this man. And we don't know what Paul said to Onesimus. We don't know what happened on that end. We don't know how that went down. But we do know that Paul sent him with a letter, the letter of Philemon. So before Paul can really use Onesimus, he's got to repair the relationship. Because ministry and service in the kingdom requires healing of broken relationships. Brothers and sisters, all of us live within this web of relationships. Most of them are strained or broken. If we're honest, our families, our marriages, relationships within this church, all of them are marked by tension, by unforgiven offenses, unconfronted problems. You know how I know? Because everybody tells me about them. Yeah. Everybody tells their pastor, which means that I know about everything. And that's not great. That's like I'm at the center of this web of broken stuff. 
And everybody's like, if somebody has a problem, they have a problem with their brother, so they come to me, they're like, do you know what so-and-so, I'm like, have you talked to them about it? No, why not? Well, I don't know, they'd rather talk to you about it. Everybody is in the middle of one of these things. But Paul knows that ministry can't continue, especially his ministry to this area around Colossae. If he's got in his care and in his keeping somebody who everybody in Colossae knows ran away and broke the law. Everybody knows has this broken relationship with the pillar of the church. He's like, you have to go back and you've got to fix this. You've got to make this right. And I'm going to send you a letter and you can go back and you can do it. This is what Paul tells Philemon, he says, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. See, the first thing that he addresses with Philemon as he's trying to deal with this issue of broken relationship is he's saying, look, this isn't about the theft or the runaway. This is about God's plan. You can look at this as a tragedy. You can look at this as brokenness, or you can look at this as the path that it took for Onesimus to come to Christ. Because now he is so much more than a slave. When he left, he was just your property. Now he's your brother. Do we begin to see how Paul addresses issues of social injustice and social problems? He doesn't address them by marching in the streets. He addresses them one relationship at a time. He's saying, he is now your brother. If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. See, not only is Onesimus the brother of Philemon now, he is the son in the faith of Paul. So he's saying, like, this is my son. Receive him as you would receive me. Do you, do you see the identity changes that are going on here? People who were enemies and debtors and slaves are now brothers and sons and fellow Christians. Does that sound like anything to you? It should sound like the gospel because that's what the gospel is. See, Paul is using the gospel to repair the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus because that's how all relationships have to be healed. As much as I would love to just forget about the things that have happened to me, I don't have it within me to be able to do that. I still have a picture on my computer of one of my friends from IOC laying on the ground as he bleeds out and all of his guys gathered around him because a sniper shot him as he came through a door. You don't just forget that. I still have in my mind Zach Davis, my platoon sergeant, who got his head blown off as we were going through Ramadi. You don't forget that. And yet, in Christ, identities change. Perceived wrongs disappear. Paul begins to tell him, he says, if he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to me. See, the number one thing that keeps us from forgiveness 
is the concept of justice. It's, as Paul Tritt says, it's the little lawyer inside of our head that keeps asserting our rights. Every time we go to forgive some, well, that person wronged me. They owed me. Can't believe they did me like that. That's just wrong. And if I let this go, then they're just going to do it to somebody else. Or somebody else is going to do it to me. And so how does Paul deal with this? He doesn't say, oh, you know, theft doesn't matter. Possessions are just a construct that the man uses to keep the lower classes down. He says, if anything is owed to you, put it on my account. Now understand this, Paul has no money. It's like when my son is like, hey, I wanna, I'll bet you $5. Like, you don't have $5. You're gambling on the house right now. Paul has no money. What's he saying? Well, deep down, he's reminding Philemon, everything that you have, you owe to me. Because I was the one that introduced you to Christ. And do you really want to be like the unrighteous servant who was forgiven much and wouldn't forgive little? Is that really who you want to be, Philemon? I just said all these really nice things about you that are true, but are you really going to, is that the testimony you're really going to give to the people around you? That you're going to take this poor man that came to Christ and you're going to demand the last penny from him? See, the evil that was done by Anismus was used by God for Philemon's good. And here's the other thing. The evil that was done by Philemon in keeping Onesimus as a slave was used by God for his glory. See, all of us sin. All of us fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us is complicit in the broken relationships that we find ourselves in the midst of. I, I can sit in front of my Arab pastor friends and think about all of the bad things that they did to me. But at the end of the day, I also have to think about all of the terrible things that I did to them and to their countrymen. I, I have to come to grips with my own sin and realize that just as God has forgiven me for the things that I have done, he has forgiven them for the things that they have done. That's the great exchange. And that's the key to forgiveness. See, Paul is encouraging Philemon to forgive Onesimus by giving up his claim to what he feels is owed to him. His honor, his money, his possessions. Paul's saying none of that matters because you belong to somebody else and it all belongs to him anyway. Forgiveness, brothers and sisters, depends on our ability to release what we feel is owed to us. And we do that by understanding how much we owe to someone else. So Paul wants Philemon to forgive Anismus and to release him from slavery because Philemon has been forgiven of his sins and he's been freed from slavery to sin. This isn't about, about owners and slaves or sinners in the aggrieved. This is about two sinners coming before the presence of God seeking reconciliation and friendship together. And that's, brothers and sisters, the place that we have to come to. See, forgiveness begins when we place our, our charges. When we place those 
sins that have been committed against us when we place them on God's account. When we stop trying to balance the scales. See, every one of us has been marked by deep pain and brokenness, and each of us has a choice how we're going to respond. One author put it this way, he said, there's three responses to pain. You can fight the forgiveness that God demands. You can fake the forgiveness that God demands, or you can embrace the forgiveness that God demands. What does that look like? Well, we, we fight the forgiveness when we remind ourselves about all the things that that person did and all the reasons why we shouldn't forgive them. Well, I couldn't possibly forgive them. They stole my birthright, cheated me out of my inheritance. They lied about me. I, you know, I remember a time, I used to work in construction after I got out of the Marines, and there was a time I, I had been I had been done wrong by a fire alarm contractor for a year. Fire alarm contractors are terrible. If you're a fire alarm contractor, I'm sorry, but it's really bad. And I'm walking with my boss, talking on the phone, and he's like, well, we probably ought to give him another chance to fulfill the contract. It's like, this man has been, you know, doing stuff to me the entire, why should I show him any grace at all? It was one of those moments that sticks out in my mind. See, all of us, all of us have been marked by deep and pain and brokenness and we fight that urge to forgive that God puts on us. And Paul says, put that on him. But see, some of us don't fight it. Some of us feign forgiveness. We fake it when we don't talk about it. Right, when we take the offense and we, we ball it up into a little ball and we push it way down deep. I knew a guy who said, yeah, take that, ball it up, put it way down deep. When it hurts, that's how you know it's working. And we think, well, I'll just hide it away in here and nobody will ever see it. <laughs> who are you fooling? Wait until the next time somebody does something to you and see what happens. It'll all come gushing out of you. It's like one of those, you ever have one of those, those nice yellow sponges? We get those. I love those. Those are really good for like washing stuff. And it'll be on the counter, and then you pick it up and you squeeze it, and all the garbage that you've been wiping up, it's nice, nice and yellow on the outside, and then all this goop comes out of it. That's what pressure does to us. All of the stuff that we think that nobody knows about, all of the offenses and the pain that we feel like we push down deep where nobody can see it, man, it comes out. You leave your underwear on the floor. Next thing you know, your wife's talking about divorcing you. <laughs> where did this even come from? I'm such a good guy. No, you ain't. She just hasn't told you. Now, we got to deal with this stuff. One way or the other, you're going to deal with it. One way or the other, this stuff is going to come out, and you're going to have to process it. See, forgiveness is not pretending like something didn't happen. It's not just forgetting about it. It's not, well, just get over it. That, that's not forgiveness. That's somebody who is tired of listening to you talk about it. Forgiveness is taking that pain and the offense that's been done to you and putting it on Christ. 
The only way that happens is if we actually believe that Jesus is actually real. And here's, here's the, the logic behind it. Somebody sins against you. One of two things is going to happen. Either they're going to go to hell and pay for it for eternity, in which case there is nothing worse that you can do to them. There is no dirty look, no mean and cutting rejoinder, no harshly worded letter that is as bad as that. Or two, that person has accepted Christ and Christ died for the sin. In which case, if God forgives it, how are you not going to forgive it? You take that sin, you put it on Christ, and you let it go. And here's the amazing thing that happens. When we forgive, it paints a picture of what the gospel looks like. This is why Paul talks to Philemon about living out the gospel. He's trying to get across to him that the gospel is about more than the things that you say. It's about the life that you live. And this man who is a pillar of his church, if he can forgive this man who's run away, and if this runaway can come back and forgive him for all of the wrong that's been done to him, what does that say about who we are in Christ? That professes the gospel far more than just going out on a corner and telling somebody about it. That's living the gospel. Here at Oak Ridge, we say that our job is to equip ordinary people to live the gospel. That's what we mean by it. That the gospel will be lived in every relationship that you have, in every broken time with your family that you repair, every marriage that's fixed, every child that comes back, all of those things are how we live the gospel. But see, when we forgive, we do something else. When we forgive, we free the gospel from our bitterness and we allow God to use it in amazing ways for his kingdom. In his goodness, God has given us a couple more glimpses into what happens in this story. Onesimus went home and somehow and in some way they reconciled. You know how we know that? Because in the book of Ephesians, Onesimus is ministering to Paul while Paul is in prison in Rome. He, he's listed with those like Mark and, and Timothy and Titus. Somehow that relationship and in the goodness and the transformative power of God, this relationship with these two men who have a bridge that is a, a gap that's unbridgeable, these men are, are healed. But, but the story doesn't end there either. See, 60 years later, in one of the first writings of the early church fathers, we, we have a cryptic line. Ignatius, one of the great fathers of the early church, was on his way to Rome to be martyred. And along the way, the bishop of Ephesus comes and ministers to him, encourages him. And we're told that the bishop of Ephesus is a, is a wise man of great faith who has spent his life in the service of the church. A, a man who has, who has devoted his entire life to depicting what redemption looks like for people. Ignatius goes to Rome and he writes a letter back to Ephesus. You know who the letter is addressed to? Onesimus. 
the first bishop of Ephesus. So Onesimus, his relationship was, was healed. And he went on to serve. And, and later on, Onesimus would be the one that would gather up the epistles of Paul. Gather them together. These letters that had such deep meaning to the church. These letters that were written by Paul. And on top of that, he put a very special letter that had been written long ago. That had meant the difference between not just freedom and slavery, but between brokenness and healing. As, as I prepared to leave that service, having had this amazing moment, the man who I had been talking to, a guy named Saeed, came up to me and, and said, um, here's my card. I, I really I want to get in touch with you. I'm the pastor of the Arabic Baptist Church of San Antonio. And I realized this is the guy that had been texting me for the last six months. Now, those of you who know me know that I'm not great at returning texts. I said, this is you? He was like, yeah, man. I want to do ministry in your area, and I want to work with you. Let's do something. So we're going to have dinner in a couple of weeks because God takes broken relationships. He takes a broken old Marine and an Arab and he puts them together to do amazing things in his kingdom. Because that's what it looks like when we free the gospel up through forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what brokenness you have in your life right now, but I know it's there. I want to encourage you this morning. If there is something that you're holding on to, if there's some hurt, some pain that you feel, put it on Christ's account. You're not strong enough to pay for it, and the other person isn't either. But Christ is. He can take it. He can make all things new. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, this is a time where you can come forward and be healed, where we can tell you what it looks like to have that relationship with Christ that takes away these hurts and these pains. Maybe you've accepted Christ but you've been living with brokenness and pain in your family for the last 30 years. You don't know how to let it go. You don't know how to get over it. Come forward. Lay that on the, at the foot of the cross. Unburden it. Let it go. See, Christ died to pay for all of our sins. Even the sins of the people that have hurt you. Y'all join me as we sing our song of invitation. Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.